Judges and chapter 4. So, just as we perhaps take five minutes just to reflect on thoughts of uh, previous studies, we remember again this significant text. It's significant in the sense that it sums up uh, the background to all the incidents of the judges. But it's also significant, I think, in the fact that it's the very last verse of the book of Judges and therefore gives us, in many ways, uh, the complete summary of all that's gone before. In those, ju- in those days, there, were no, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Because there was no king, there was no symbol of authority, there was no judgment, there was no justice in many ways, and uh, the people had in their own eyes freedom to do whatever they desired to do. Very similar to our day and age, when society makes its own rules, when society says, I can do what I like, in many ways, so long as I don't hurt anyone else. But we'll come to look at those sorts of things in the coming uh, few moments. So, we've looked at these, uh, we have before us these 12 judges, and we've looked, haven't we, at Othniel, who ruled for 40 years, who judged Israel 40 years, Caleb's younger brother, defeated the king of Mesopotamia. Then we looked at Ehud, who reigned or ruled for 80 years. We read the very gory and bloody uh, descriptions of how he killed the king of Moab and subdued the Moabites. Uh, Then we looked briefly, didn't we, at uh, the next group, those which we perhaps mistakenly called the nobodies because, as we said right at the end last time, they were not nobodies, but they were unknown in many ways, their length of Uh, time they judged and the deeds that they did apart from the fact that they did rule. We covered Shamgar, we looked at Tola, Jair, Ibsan, Elon and Abdon as a group together because the scripture has barely a verse about each one. And so this evening we're going to just consider again um, the next one in the list and that is Deborah. And if you can see on the map there, the action, we'll look at this a bit later, Deborah is there just below the Sea of Kinnereth, which becomes in the New Testament the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's, you can see also there Wadi Kishon. And we'll look at that to particular a geographical feature later on. So, We're going to call this evening's talk Unexpected Deliverance and I'm sure perhaps many of you are ahead of me as we look at this situation and we're looking at chapter 4. So here we have again a familiar map of the land of Canaan distributed amongst the various tribes and what we're going to look at now is just the key players in this particular chapter, in this particular series of events. So, people and places. First person we come across, of course, is Deborah, the main character in many ways. We're told that she was the wife of a man called Lapidoth. 
they lived between Bethel and Rama and you can see them you can see Bethel there and uh, I don't think Rama is on there but Bethel certainly is there and we can see that too that's towards the north of the land and then we come across Barak the son of Abinoam he lived in Kedesh in the province of Naphtali and this is right up the north uh, just above Hazor just below Dan uh, in the uh, land given to the tribe of Naphtali then we come across Jabin uh, the king of Canaan he reigned in Hazor just a little bit above where um, Barak lived and he was the king over all the land there is another Jabin earlier on uh, but this is a later one we're not sure if they're of the same family or the same descendants but he reigned in Hazor in Naphtali it must have been quite a um, large kingdom that he reigned over and then after him we come to discover a man called Sisera who was the captain of Jabin's army and now we don't know exactly where Harasheth Hagoyim actually is on the map but we draw from the fact that it's not far away from where the action is taking place and then another another interesting character a man called Heber a Kenite of the tribe of Hobab and Hobab apparently was Moses' father-in-law and they lived in Kedesh also which is just above Hazor in the north and again we'll see something interesting and finally we come across this lady called JL who is the wife of this man Heber and then finally we look at the battlefield and the battlefield is in the plain of Esdraelon located southwest of the Sea of Galilee and stretching towards Mount Tamor so if you can see Mount Tamor just uh, there, just above the red of Issachar, just at the top there, uh, just below to the southwest of uh, the Sea of Galilee. So this is the location and these are the people that we'll be talking about this evening. So just to have a look at the structure of the chapter, the sons of Israel are oppressed and as we go through perhaps I'll read the scriptures which we have in front of us. So, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Haggaiim, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years... He had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. It's a particularly difficult time for the children of Israel. It would appear that this man Jabin was particularly brutal, had a very powerful army consisting at least of 900 chariots of iron, a formidable force, almost like tanks in modern warfare, or Second World War warfare anyway. We don't have tanks so much now. We have missiles and all sorts of drones and things. 
But certainly in those days, iron, um, iron chariots would have been formidable on the battlefield. And then we're introduced, verses 4 to 9, to Deborah. So the scripture tells us now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree uh, in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of God came up for her judgment. And then she sent and called Barak, called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and the multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hands. So thus we are introduced to Deborah, the prophetess. And it's interesting that we learn that she is a prophetess, which means she was already in many ways in possession of the Spirit of God, giving, uh, resting upon her, giving the abilities for her to indeed prophesy and also to execute judgment in the kingdom at that time. And so verses 10 verse 10 right in the middle there and Barak called Zebulun and, Nab and Naphtali to Kedesh he went up with 10,000 men under his command and Deborah went up with him and then we come move down to 12 and they reported to Sisera that Barak the son of Abinuam had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 <coughs> chariots of men, and all the people were with him from Harasheth Hagaim to the river Kishon. So here are the uh, two sides preparing for battle. They've called out the armies together, and they've gone to this place on the um, plain of Esdralon uh, to take up battle. And I'm sure Sisera was confident that he was going to actually defeat the armies of the Israelites easily with his 900 chariots of iron and the vast army that he commanded as well. Then we move on uh, in many ways to what uh, we can call Yahweh the warrior. And if we look at verse 14, we see this coming through as Deborah speaks to Barak. She says, Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord, the warrior king, the warrior lord, gone before you? We comment later perhaps on the fact that it is the warrior king who wins the battle. And so we find that Barak and Sisera go down, verses 14, 15 and 16. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak and Sisera lighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. And then the narrative takes us further down and so it was that we come to verse 17. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace, so there was a treaty. We'll come to that in a minute. There was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, 
the Kenite. And then finally we learn that Jabin, the king of Canaan, is ultimately subdued, verse 21. So on that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Now this particular feature, isn't it, of scriptures, that it doesn't waste words. All we have here in this chapter is a very succinct, in many ways, summary, uh, a commentary, just giving us the main facts. There's not a lot to... Uh, elaborate on but we have here again a record of God acting on behalf of his own people so as we move on we see again right from the beginning of this chapter we've just looked through this familiar circle this familiar path of the children of Israel we see the sin when Ehud was dead the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so they're sold under the hand of Jabin, they're in subjection. Then they cry to the Lord and ultimately the Lord delivers them and grants them in many ways salvation from uh, their oppressor. So, the people again did evil in the sight of the Lord. What does this mean? Well, uh, the commentators, the historians tell us that principally evil in this context means Baal worship. And this was the really great uh, problem that Israel had throughout the <coughs> life of their occupation in Canaan. Because, as we saw right at the beginning, because they did not obey the Lord, because they did not drive out the foreign nations in the land as God had commanded them, because they didn't do these things, they were therefore forever condemned in many ways to live amongst these heathen tribes who had these evil practices. And of course we know that worship of Baal was an awful thing. It involved, didn't it, sacrifice of children. It involved incredible immorality amongst the religious, so-called religious leaders. And it led the people, it led the people of Israel as they clamoured to be like uh, the nations around and worship the gods of the nations around it led them on the downward downward spiral and we see that if you go back to this circle again sin, subjection, supplication, salvation and then eventually sin, subjection, supplication and salvation it's a continuing theme all the way through the book and we noted right at the beginning that it was necessary 12 times for the Lord to show mercy and to raise up someone to deliver them from the oppression uh, or the uh, 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 subjection to which they had gone into because of their continuing sin. And of course, it took ultimately the 70-year uh, subjection in Babylon to actually rid the people of Israel of their desire for idol worship. So... And what we find, as we have just more or less hinted at, that this was a monotony of sin, over and over and over again, the same sin, recurring, recurring. Perhaps uh, 
at the beginning, it might have been exciting for them. But of course, over the years, and we're looking in this book at a period of some 400 years, uh, during which the judges were raised up and uh, overruled the uh, people of Israel. During this time, it was the constant monotony of the same sin, and it uh, indeed was not exciting. It was just staleness and the slavery to sin. They could not rid themselves of their desires for these evil practices. And this is the great addiction, isn't it? We talk about people being addicted to nicotine or drink or drugs. Other things they're addicted to, gambling and that sort of thing. But the greatest addiction that mankind has is to sin. It cannot rid itself of the desire. And it produces, doesn't it, uh, a staleness in people because they can't go forward. They're constantly dragged back by their addiction to sin. We've seen so many times how difficult it is uh, for people to rid themselves of the addiction to alcohol or to drug. In many cases, it takes them almost, in case of drugs, almost back to the verge of death to actually get the effect out of drugs out of their system and to rid themselves of the desire and for the experience that the drugs bring them. And so we see here for the people of Israel and for the world around, ever since man was created, ever since Adam and Eve uh, sinned against God, there has been that slavery to sin. So, and again, it begins the chapter with this comment. Ehud was dead. Ehud was perhaps the longest ruling of all the judges, ruled for 80 years. We know how he began, how he delivered the people, how he slew uh, Eglon. And from that point, the people in many ways had rest. And he exercised an authority <coughs> over them. And so it seems that as soon as Ehud was dead, and it was the same with Joshua, and it was the same with uh, Ophniel, as soon as these men of authority passed from this line, so the people, left to their own devices, returned to their sin. <coughs> you see, leadership and restraint were removed. And as leadership and restraint were removed, Israel displays its true character and its true colours. And this is the same, isn't it? People go on rehabilitation, uh, they go to clinics to dry out, but as soon as the environment in which they are, which helps them to do these things, it disappears as they come out, they think they're cured, they're given uh, license to go out again. It's not long, is it, before they return to the addiction of sin. And it's the same in a spiritual sense. We can't, of our own accord, deliver ourselves from addictions to sin. So, religion then, that is uh, of this kind, religion is questionable then, isn't it? If it's seen only as a result of outside pressures. See, if people exercise leadership over us, or if they have influence over us, then perhaps we are under a sort of sense of moral obligation or duty to conform to those things. 
You see, Christians can only sometimes be Christians because the expectation of other Christians around us or because of our circumstances or other influences surrounding us. Now we spent last week in prayer for the children and we do pray, don't we, earnestly that this might not be uh, behind many of the confessions that perhaps these young people are making. It's very, very difficult. But they've grown up in Christian families and there are influences in their lives. And we just pray that uh, the confessions they make are true and honourable, not necessarily because of their surroundings and their circumstances. This is why we are so concerned uh, for those teenagers who are approaching independence as they move away from parental control as they move out into the world, as they uh, experience the forces and attractions of the world which will only uh, react to the sin within them. So we do pray for them in that respect. And this is true in the biggest, widest picture here of the nation of Israel. Once Ehud, once Joshua, once Othniel were dead, uh, they felt the freedom to indulge themselves in their addiction uh, to sin. See, such a condition betrays a true, a lack of a true internal work of God. This is why we said right at the very beginning that although these people cried to the Lord for deliverance, this wasn't, it can't have been, a cry of true repentance because they went back to it over and over and over again, up to 12 times as recorded in the book of Judges. And so we have to be very careful that uh, such a condition betrays a lack of the true internal work of God. These are important lessons, I think, to learn from our reading of these events. Genuine salvation uh, consists principally of departing from evil. Paul writes to Timothy, doesn't he, in these words, depart from evil, put aside evil from you, and living a consistent life a life that's consistent with the teachings of Scripture. I think David's gone out to deal with it. Okay, a life that's consistent with the set down in Scripture, a life that uh, the Apostle John, in his his letters later on, uh, exhorts people to live a life of constancy and not varying, continuing to live according to the standards and the rule of life set out in the scriptures. Well, moving on. Deborah, as we move down, Deborah assures Barak of victory. Of course, Barak says, doesn't he, and we read this, he will not go up unless Deborah goes with him. And in some senses we have here uh, from verse 6 onwards then she sent and called for Barak the son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali and said to him it's a sort of rhetorical question here isn't there has not the Lord God of has not the Lord God of Israel said this is what the Lord God of Israel has said go take your troops go to Mount Tabor take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun the local if you like the local tribes where the men could be drawn from uh, of the sons of Naphtali, and against you I will deploy Sisera, 
the Lord was going to bring the two armies together. Uh, he's going to um, bring Sisera. He's going to put in his heart to go and meet um, Barak's army. And I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Javid's army, with his chariots and his multitudes at the river Kishon. And I will deliver them into your hand, even before the battle begins. Barak is assured that this is going to be a victory. But he then, he's a bit like Gideon, isn't he? Gideon here has to, we read, and we'll come to Gideon later, of course, in the series. Gideon asks for the fleece wet and the fleece dry. And Barak says, if you will go with me, then I will go. If you will not go with me, I will not go. Somebody else said that earlier in the scripture. Moses, didn't he? He said to God, if you will not go with us, we will not go. And so she said, um, Deborah says, surely I will go with you. Here's the uh, wonderful statement. I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and I will deliver him into your hand. What a wonderful confidence that Barak had uh, to go forward in this basis. So Deborah assures Barak of victory in this matter. God is going to grant the victory. See, Deborah's emphasis is this, up. He says, she says, get up, come on, let's get on with it. Get your army together. And she says here, Has not the Lord gone before you? The Lord has gone. The Lord didn't need Barak's army, did he, to um, defeat Sisera. We now have the Lord moved against the Syrians. Was it 180,000 men disappeared in the night, uh, in the days, in the later days? Was it Elijah or Elisha at the time of Elijah or Elisha? I can't remember. But certainly the Lord really had no need of Barak's army, but he takes Barak's army to demonstrate. And in many ways he's leading the army. So she depicts God here as the warrior. Has not the Lord, has not the Lord gone before you who fights for his people? And it's this statement in many ways that um, gives him confidence. So, this is a view, isn't it? The view of God the warrior that's at variance with modern thinking. In the West today, we focus on, in many ways, gentle Jesus, the God of love, a soft and gentle God. But the scriptural picture is, although he is a God of love, he is also a God of justice and the God of judgment, and to deliver his people, he will act, he will be seen. There's a quote here from Revelation, the only real hope for God's people is, is a strong Lord who, in righteousness, judges and makes war. And that's recorded in the scripture at the time of the great end times, when the Lord will destroy Satan and all his... Uh, supporters with the brightness of his coming a righteous judge and the one who makes war on his enemies so how the lord defeated sisera well next time we're going to look in more detail at the uh, song of deborah but as we go down there in chapter 5 and verse 4 <coughs> we see that the lord when you went out from seir when you marched from the field of edom the earth trembled and the heavens poured, the clouds also poured water 
the mountains gush before the Lord. So it seems, doesn't it, at that time, there was a huge rainstorm that came upon the battlefield. And we read again back in, uh, in here that there was panic, there was confusion. This huge rainstorm made it impossible for these chariots of iron to proceed. They were stuck in the mud and they couldn't move. And so the army of Barak were able to go in amongst them and defeat them uh, in the very gory way that ancient battles were fought hand to hand. Uh, very gory. So Deborah reveals to Barak, doesn't he? It shall be not to God. Now this is very, very significant. Lest Barak should begin to think that it was his victory ultimately. Deborah reveals to Barak uh, that uh, it shall not be to your glory. So Barak was not to take, not to be able in many ways to take glory for the ultimate deliverance of the people of Israel from Sisera's army, Sisera's commander of Javin's army. It shall not be to your glory. And so we now come to this unexpected deliverance. There will be no human military might, but the hand of the woman will bring the victory. Now, of course, we're in days back here when women were insignificant. It was men that went to battle. It was men that did the business. It was men that were brave and strong. And they were the people to look to for deliverance and security. But you see here, God confounds the military. God confounds the expectations of the men, these brave, battle-hardened warriors. Uh, he confounds them by saying, it will be the hand of a woman that will bring the final victory. Into the hand of the woman is the emphasis in the Hebrew text, we're told. And so we come to this unexpected source of deliverance. God takes pains here in this statement uh, that Deborah makes to Barak. God takes pains, if you like, to prevent any man from taking his glory. My glory I will give to no one, uh, says the Lord. So, no human warrior in Israel will outshine the divine warrior. It is he who will bring the victory. Now, just look back to verse 11. What on earth has this little piece of information got to do? Seemingly insufficient detail and unrelated to the main event. This man Heber, a Kenite, um, the f who was descended from Hobab, who was the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the main body, if you like, of the Kenite tribe, of the, uh, the society of the Kenites. And he has pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanim, which is beside Kenya. He's moved all the way, far north, away from the main group of his people. What on earth relevance right in the middle of this chapter is this? Well, we're going to see, aren't we? This seemingly insignificant detail and this unrelated to the main event, we see God's sovereign purposes are being out, being worked out. God had moved him there for a specific purpose. And so it is that Jael, his wife, the wife of Heba, is in the right place at the right time. God's unlikely instrument 
in the defeat of Jabin and therefore bringing about Israel's complete deliverance. Now, we know what happened. He came into Jael's tent, he came into uh, her area, and we know there is peace between Jabin and Heba. The Jabin could safely and confidently look to feel safe and secure once he entered into Heba's territory, once he came under the, uh, if you like, the protection of that peace treaty. And so Sisera feels safe. He accepts the provisions. She provides food and drink and uh, says to him, here, lay down, sleep. And he must have gone to sleep weary after the battle, uh, exhausted after the battle. He fled from the battlefield. He may have run many miles, travelled many miles from the battlefield to reach the security of this particular and so he's exhausted and he lies down to sleep uh, firm in the knowledge that eventually all will be well but again we're provided and I think we noted this time this last time we're provided with some gruesome details I think we commented last time that uh, during the course of Judges we see some amazing uh, instruments being used uh, for God's purposes of deliverance. Shamgar had an ox goad. Uh, um, Ehud had this dagger, this long dagger. Here we have Jael with a tent peg. Samson, uh, the jawbone of an ass. And so it is as we go through. And so we're provided with these gruesome details, aren't we? <laughs> However, Sisera fled away on foot, verse 17, the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and invited him in. And when he had turned aside into a tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door. And so it is. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent pig and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground where he was fast asleep and weary so he died it's amazing isn't it something he would never expected something that we perhaps in our modern society uh, fall back from we shrink away from what a terrible terrible deed um, a few years ago we would even even said this is even worse because it's done by a woman. What an evil woman. But you see, it seems on the face of it, as I've just said, that Jael shows treachery and deceit. She breaks in many ways the peace treaty. And so the scripture, however, as we go on next time to look at Deborah's song, the scripture approves of Jael's action. Note the praise of we come to that in the song of Deborah. And so, what is the essential message of this passage? What is the essential message? Well, is yes, it is a true historical record of the acts of the people. No, it's not a focus on the morality of Jael's actions. Yes, it is essentially, yet again, to record the continuing care and mercy of Almighty God in delivering his people when they cried to him. This is the whole picture 
of the book of Judges. Every time he delivers them, even though they don't deserve it, least of all, deliverance time and time again, you might say, it's a bit like Peter says, how many times should I forgive? Up to seven times. And the Lord says, no, up to 70 times seven. And this is a picture of the Lord in many ways uh, putting this into practice time and time again. He delivers, he rescues, he cares for, he provides for his uh, own people. And so this care and this deliverance is ultimately, of course, realised in the death and resurrection of his son, our Saviour, who defeated our greatest enemy, didn't he? Satan. And he has delivered us from Satan's oppression. Problem really for us is that we still live in many ways with our residual sin and we still have this propensity to go back to our original sin uh, but we can be delivered by constantly considering his word by constantly praying by constantly coming into his presence confessing our sin knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness well it's good I think that we have opportunity consider these wonderful pictures perhaps you may be put up perhaps by the gruesomeness of it but surely nothing was more gruesome than the saviour hanging upon that cross in order to deliver us from our sins amen